Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the middle of the 21st uh, season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the Senior Pastor of St. Philip Deacon here, which is privileged to put these events on for the wider community, and we're so delighted that all of you came out tonight. Uh, we have a lot of people in the sanctuary. I assume we have a lot of people joining us online. Um, I'd like to ask, I hope this doesn't embarrass anyone, but is anyone here uh, at their first faith and life event ever? You can put your hands up high. Great, special welcome to all of you. I can't see your hands at home, but if you are also here for the first time online, special welcome to you. Uh, for 20, more than 20 years now, we have been inviting people from all walks of life uh, to get up and say a word about how faith intersects with their own particular uh, way of living. And so we've had academics, we've had theologians, we've had musicians, we've had athletes, we've had authors, we've had we had a, a retired politician once. Uh, we have not done that since. Um, <laughs> and it's been a wonderful exercise in listening to really thoughtful, intelligent people uh, come and share a word about faith with us. I'm gonna introduce tonight's speaker in a minute. Uh, for those of you who have not been to a Faith in Life event before, I'll just tell you a little bit about the flow after she comes up and speaks for 40, 45 minutes. There will be a chance for some question and answer. So if you are here in the sanctuary and you uh, have something you'd like to ask, I'll invite you uh, later to come up and do that at one of the mics to my right or to my left. So be thinking about questions you might have. If you are at home, you are also welcome. I would encourage you to send questions in. You can do that online uh, in a couple ways. If you're on the Faith and Life website, um, the live stream, there'll be a chat box to the right if you're on a computer. There's also a box uh, below that. You can send a message either of those ways or you can send an email to social, S-O-C-I-A-L, social, at spdlc.org. And those uh, questions will come to me and I'll be able to forward them to our speaker at the appropriate time. Uh, tonight's speaker, I feel like we've been planning for this event actually for a long time because we were going to use uh, her book, uh, Taste and See, for a study before this little thing called the pandemic came along. And so we had to punt on that. We're actually doing that study right now and joyfully we're able to invite her to be here and she actually met with some of the people who are taking that course. She's an author. Uh, she was named recently one of the 50 women most shaping culture in the church today by Christianity Today. Uh, she has a podcast. Um, I don't know if she'll be talking about that tonight, but I always, if you've been here before, you know I like to ask our speakers for something that's maybe a little off the beaten path in terms of their biography. I don't know if she's gonna say more about either of these things. I didn't really get any details, but I have two things to share with you. First, she is fascinated by and loves to weld. I don't know what she welds exactly. Um, and second, for a number of years, and I don't know what that means either, she lived on a boat in the Caribbean. Will you join me in welcoming Margaret Feinberg? What a joy and a delight to be with all of you this evening. Some time ago, I was living out west in my home state when I got a call from my aunt up in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving and when he came to the surface, he was dead. It turned her world upside down and she desperately needed help with someone in her bed and breakfast to give her a hand. And being one of the only people in the family with a flexible schedule, I traveled up to Sitka, Alaska to help my aunt for several summers. And while I was there, I met some rather unforgettable people, one of whom was a tall, strapping Alaskan by the name of Leif. You see, I was signing books in a church cafe, and he noticed me, but I didn't really notice him because I'm a lot like Dory from Finding Nemo. Hi! Ooh, hi! But I eventually caught on to the fact that wherever I went in Sitka, there was Leif, which might have been a little bit uncomfortable, disconcerting, downright creepy. Except again, Sitka is this tiny town with 14 miles of road. It's that tiny fishbowl existence where you see the same people at the post office and the gas station and, and even like the grocery store. I mean, this is a town so small that when people register for their wedding, they register at true value. 
So here I am, and everywhere I go, I keep running into Leif, and, and eventually we become friends, and we're hanging out, and after only knowing him for about six weeks, it's time for me to return back to my home state. But before I do, he sits me down, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, Margaret, I would like to ask you to consider pursuing a relationship whereby you would move to Alaska and eventually, hopefully, become my wife. way to let it all hang out. And I remember thinking, ooh, I am so not moving to Alaska for a boy. I mean, they make movies out of people who do things like that. Starring Sandra Bullock. So I pack up, I return back to my home state, but Leif keeps calling and pursuing me. And a few months later, I remember my cousin was getting married off the coast of Washington, and before the wedding, Leif had come down, and my mom had come in, and for the first time, we all sat around a table and shared a meal. And at the end of that meal, my mom looked at me, and she said, Margaret, this guy is amazing, and you are a fool if you don't give this relationship a chance. And so I listened to my mom, I moved up to Alaska, and 10 months later, I married my stalker. <laughs> And today, my husband Leif, yes, he's Norwegian, and I live outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. We have a beautiful life. He gets to work in a job where he works with immigrants and refugees and within the foster care system and church engagement, and we have a very cute little four-pound poodle named Zoom. But the second unforgettable person that I met during those summers at the bed and breakfast was one of the guests who came through, and her name was Lynn. And one morning over berry scones and hot coffee, we were talking about life when I randomly asked her what she did in her free time. And she said, I am a shepherdess. And I was like, uh, uh, what? <laughs> like, what? She says, yeah, I'm a shepherdess. I take care of sheep. But I'm like, where? In your backyard? And she begins to describe how near her home outside of Portland, Oregon, she has both an upper and a lower field where she takes care of sheep. And as she is talking about her daily care of sheep, I'm instantly having Bible passages race through my mind. But I don't want to sound like one of those people. And so I'm like, sometimes I read this book called The Bible. And in it, it talks about like how God is like a shepherd and we're like sheep. And like God cries out to the sheep or and a shepherd cries out to the sheep. They like come running. Like, Does that really happen? And she says, yes. And as she is talking about this care of these animals, my imagination is coming alive. Well, because of that chance encounter, several years later, I went and spent time with Lynn and her sheep. And I thought, I have got to write about this. Well, that was more than 20 years ago. And what that encounter did was it opened me up to the agrarian aspect of the Bible. That it was written in this world where agriculture was everywhere. And if you actually start to look at the pages of the Bible, what you'll see is that food pops and sizzles on almost every page. And with hundreds and hundreds of mentions of food within the Bible, I thought if I'm gonna write about this topic, I have got to narrow my search. And so what I did is I identified six different foods of the Bible, and I sought out the people who plant and process and pro procure them. Not large, huge manufacturing plants, but people who cared so much about the quality of the soil, the care of the animals, that they had this artisanal flair to them. And this journey left, led me to go and pluck figs in Madera, California with the largest manager of fig farms in the United States. I traveled and fished in the Galilee. I tracked down the world's expert on ancient grains that happens to be a professor at Yale Divinity School. I cold called him, introduced myself, and invited myself to his house to bake bread for an afternoon. Because that's what normal people do. <laughs> and serial killers. I even tracked down a guy in McKinney, Texas, who called himself the Meat Apostle and graduated from his Stakeology 101 course. 
And with each of these individuals, I opened up the Bible and I asked, how do you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I studied the scripture? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I downloaded so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? This began the journey and the basis for a book and a Bible study called Taste and See. And this book looks at the wonders of God and his creation through the scripture. Why taste and see? Because I don't know about you, but I think we are living in an increasingly divisive, polarized world where more and more it is time for the people of faith to rise up and allow others to taste and see the goodness of God. And one of the most powerful places we do that is around a table. And so tonight, I just wanted to briefly share on two of the foods that I explored in my journey. And the first is a common one. Some of you may be enjoying them, particularly this winter. And that food stuff is the grape. Now, if you actually go into the Bible and you start to look for grapes and vines and vineyards throughout the scripture, you will discover almost 500 references. We open up in the book of Genesis and we discover that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. He planted a vineyard and he drank too much. We also learn that some of Israel's greatest leaders, whether that was Isaiah or David or Uzziah, they either had vineyards or had people who took care of vineyards for them. Throughout the prophets, we discover that they're often drawing on vine and vineyard imagery in the words that they speak to the people, which is kind of intriguing because it's also noted in the scripture that drunkenness is explicitly forbidden. And so the question becomes, why would God use vine and vineyard imagery so much? Well, it's interesting because modern archaeologists in Israel have been learning that if they look at the ancient plots of land where people live, there were often traces of vines right near the houses. So as God used the vine and the vineyard imagery, it would be the same as maybe God using the tomato plants or the green bean plants that we grow in our pots or our backyards in order to communicate his heart to us. But in the scripture, I think that there is no more passage, no passage that is more potent when it comes to vine and vineyard imagery than that found in John chapter 15, when Jesus takes on this imagery for himself. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I, I am the vine. You, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. Zilchamundo. So in order to understand this passage, I traveled to Napa Valley to spend time with a boutique vineyard manager by the name of Christoph. Now, Christoph didn't manage tens of thousands of acres of grapes like someone might in Fresno, California, but rather he managed these tiny parcels of land. Some of them were but three or five acres in space. And so I'm sitting down with this man who so intimately is involved with his grapes. And as we start to talk about this passage, I notice that there are two main themes that emerge. And one of those themes is the image of pruning. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when somebody starts to talk about pruning in life or at work or spiritual life or faith, I am the girl who's like, beep, beep, beep. Like, I want to back out of there. And maybe some of you are like, yay, pruning. And I'm like, no. And honestly, part of that reason is, is because when I think about pruning, one of the images that comes to mind is something like this. And yes, it was as fun to get through TSA as you can imagine. <laughs> 
But the image that I kind of have is that if I am this vine that is growing up before God, then God's going to look down and he's going to be like, whew, don't need that there. That was never intended to be. Ooh, that's not good. Whack, whack, whack. That's a wild thing. He's a whack, 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 whack. Until I am the short little stubby thing that's left. And maybe, just maybe then, God can do something good in me. And when I described this to Christoph, he looked at me and he said, Margaret, that is not the way that we prune vines in Napa Valley. And he said, when we want to prune a vine here, we use something that looks a lot more like this. And I remember he pulled these out and I was thinking, man, those are so small. Like, those are my cuticle clippers. Like, I could give my husband a pedicure with one of these. He began to describe that during the growing season, he would go out into his vineyard so many times and walk down every line so many times that he would actually handle every single cluster of grapes three to four times. And he would go through and he would cut back just a leaf and just a baby branch so that every grape and every cluster received not just the right amount of sunlight, but the right amount of air for maximum fruitfulness and maximum flavor. And when he said that, I thought, God, if this is what you mean by pruning, then by your spirit, have your way with me. But the second aspect or image that comes out of this vineyard passage is that of abiding. And I grew up in Sunday school, and they would talk about abiding and and going to the grocery store and seeing the grapes. I kind of had this picture that if the grape was attached to the branch, the branch was attached to the vine. Like, as long as everything stayed connected, as long as people stayed, like, plugged into Jesus, it would be all okay. And while there is truth in that, as I began to study viticulture, the art and science of growing grapes, this came alive in a whole new way. Because I always thought that if you wanted to grow grapes, then you would use a grape, right? It's got seed inside. And yet what Christoph explained is that if you want to grow some of the best grapes that can be grown, you actually don't want to use the seeds of grapes. You want to use the sheet, the shoots of previous vines. Anybody in this room who may be thinking about starting something new and work or spiritually, Listen up, because it's fascinating. You use those shoots that come from previous generations. And the shoots come in, and the very first year, what the vintner will do is he will actually plant those shoots in the ground. And at the end of that year, they will grow up, and he will go through, and he will cut them down. In the second year, those vines will grow up even taller, but at the end of the second year, he will go through, and he will cut them down again. The third year, those vines will grow so tall, they will begin to produce grapes, but he doesn't take them. He goes through, and he cuts them down again. And it's not until year four that those vines will grow up, they will produce grapes, and he will actually harvest them, process them, bottle them. But it won't be until year seven until he gets to taste the very first fruits of his labor. And because of the high cost of land in Napa Valley, he won't reach a break-even point until year 14, 16, 18, or 20. But once the hard work and effort is done in planting those vines and nurturing them, they will go on to produce fruit for 20, 40, 60, even 80 years. And when Christoph said that, something shifted in my understanding of that call to abide in Christ. Because I I have areas of my life, and I would suggest that some of you may as well, those areas where you look and you go, God, why am I not more fruitful? Why am I not more productive? And it's like the spirit of the living God says, do you not know? Have you not heard? That if you will just continue to faithfully abide in me, I will bring about a harvest in you that is beyond your wildest imaginations. But that image of abiding, it's not just about what is going on above the soil. It's also what's going on beneath the soil. Because I always thought that if I wanted to grow really great grapes, I would go down to True Value, where I registered for my wedding, (laughs) 
And I would buy one of those big bags of miracle Grow soil, you know, the kinds that you stick your finger in and they grow three inches, not creepy at all. And I said this to Christoph, and he was like, you have no good instincts in this business at all. And he said, Margaret, if you want to grow the best grapes, the kind that can compete on the world stage, you do not want rich, lush soil. You actually want rocky, difficult soil. Did you know there's a winery over in France called Chateau Lafitte, which they grow their grapes in their vines in 75% gravel. But there are days that the vintner there will go out, he will inspect the vines, and he will look and he will say, it is not rocky enough. And he will actually take a stone or a rock and he will place it next to the base of the vine because he knows that it is that rock, that stone, that will force the roots to go deeper, to reach different levels of minerals and nutrients so that the grapes that are grown have a complexity and a depth and a rigor of flavor that is some of the finest in the world. When Christoph said that, something shifted in me because I know that I have rocks in my life. My hunch is that you do too. You have those stones, you have those hard areas, you have those places where you have begged and hoped and wish that God would take it away. For some of you in this room, it may be something like a diagnosis. It may be that relationship that has gone awry with a child or a sibling or a family member that it just doesn't seem like it will ever come right again. It may be that deepest area of pain in your life. You have that rock. I have mine, I have those places that I have, I have not prayed a dozen, I have prayed a hundred, if not a thousand times. Take that rock, that difficult thing away. And it is like in those moments, the Spirit of God whispers, do you not know, have you not heard that it is that stone, that difficult area that I will use to produce the flavor of my son, Jesus Christ, in you? To which we say, Spirit, have your way with me. Indeed, he is the master vintner. The second food that I wanted to explore with you tonight and just touch on is one that I grew up with loving, and that is the olive. Now, when I was a little girl, at Thanksgiving, every year there would be a white bowl with black olives inside. How many people here by a sign of hands had that on your table as a child? Okay, wow, there's like a whole 17 of us. <laughs> when you grow up in a family, you think everybody does it, and now you discover we're the weird ones. And the thing that I loved about those olives as a kid was I could take them and I could put each one on a finger, much like raspberries today, and create my own puppet show, play with my food at the table, and no one yelled at me. One time a year, the best. But as I grew older, and I began to write about this, I discovered that there are some of you in this room who don't like olives. I know, and you hurt my heart, you do. <coughs> but I would also suggest but if I were to maybe take some olive oil, get some fresh basil and garlic, and maybe a little cracked pepper and salt, and then we pulled a large loaf of artisanal bread, maybe gluten-free, out of the oven, and you could dip it in that olive oil, that it might be a food in the Bible worth considering. Well, growing up out west in Colorado and now living in Utah, I, I'll be honest, like I didn't... I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to olives or olive trees, really. That wasn't something that grew near our house. And so in order to better understand olives, I tracked down a family who lived on a remote island off the coast of Croatia. And they had been harvesting the olive trees in their family for generations. 
We showed up and our hostess, Natalia, my husband Leif and I were there. He's six foot eight, he's huge. We kind of climb into the European jelly bean sized car with our oversized American suitcases. We begin driving. We spend the night at our house and the next morning at the crack of dawn, we get up to go help them bring in olives. So we get back in the jelly bean sized car and we start driving and we're doing all these narrow, narrow roads and all of a sudden we come around one particular term and it is like olivedom. Like there are olives in all directions. And eventually we come to a stop on the side of the road and she opens up the trunk and she exposes the tools that we're gonna use. And they're pretty basic. It is a couple of old beaten five gallon buckets and a couple of really used old blue tarps. And so we gather our wares and we start climbing up the side of the mountain and we're moving toward one particular tree and I kind of see rustling up top and I'm like, what is that? You know, bears, lions, I don't know, it's on this island. And all of a sudden I see this 70 year old woman descend from a ladder. She has a toothless grin, a crookedly buttoned cardigan, and she's just got this jolliness about her. And she looks at me and she says, Marguerite. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm caught up in some Greek wedding movie. And I'm like, Mama. <laughs> so I give her a big hug. And she shows us how to pick olives. And what you do is you go to an olive tree and you take that blue tarp and you put it around the ground so that if any olives fall while you're picking, the blue tarp will catch them and they don't go to waste. And then you have your five gallon bucket and she showed how she would reach up the olive tree and she would begin massaging the branch and as she was, the olives would go pop, pop, pop in the five gallon bucket below. It looks so easy. So I grab the five gallon bucket and I reach up and as I'm doing it, all of a sudden twigs and leaves are falling in all directions and the olives are going all over the blue tarp and I barely get any in the bucket and I get done and she looks at me and she goes <laughs> and Natalia explains that if I break the wrong branches on the olive tree, then that will impede and lessen next year's harvest. Well, we start picking olives and we're up on our tippy toes and we're doing this all day, hour after hour, day after day. And I don't remember exactly what day it was, but somewhere along the way, Natalia's mama decided that if she just spoke loud enough in Croatian, we would understand. The only problem is no Ablo Croatian. And so as the days go on, she is yelling louder and louder until I remember one particular moment when my tall husband is standing there and all of a sudden mama comes up and it looks like she is yelling at him with all of her might and then she just wraps her arms around his legs. And that's when we discovered that mama loved Leif the best because he was the tallest and could reach the branches that no one else could. But there is something that happens when you pick olives for eight or 10 hours a day. As you are doing that work, the muscles around your neck tighten up, your lower back starts to hurt, your hamstrings and your calves form knots. And as you're picking, what happens is you brush against the branches and you brush against the twigs and all of a sudden you end up with all these micro small cuts all over your hands and arms. But what's amazing is that when I would come home in the evenings, I would look at my hands and it looked like they had been soaking in a world-class spa. You see, the creator God designed the olive with antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antibacterial properties. So that just as you are doing the work, the healing is soaking in. So too, as you, as people of faith, are considering it doing the work, whether you're doing the work in your marriage or taking care of your kids or your grandkids, or imparting values or caring for your neighbor, or your best friend, or that person who's in a really dark spot, that as you're doing the work, even so by the power of the Spirit, the healing is soaking in. But if you start to look for olives and its oil throughout the Bible, one of the primaries that you will see it in the Hebrew text is you will see it in the context of anointing. 
And anointing was common. It was a process that happened particularly for the kings. And when they anointed in antiquity, it wasn't kind of like in some churches today where it's like that little dab will do you. But rather, when they anointed, the oil would flow from the hair down the chest, down the cheeks, onto the beard, and onto the belly, as the psalmist describes. And in that anointing, what would happen was the light would often catch it, and so there was this radiance that was emitted that represented the very favor of God. And what were the kings who were anointed called to do by God? They were called to bring healing to the land. And so that we should not be surprised that when Jesus comes, he is called the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And on the night of his arrest, he could have gone anywhere. He could have gone to his friends Lazarus or Martha and Mary's house. He could have tucked away on any mountain, but he goes to one X marks the spot place, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Yard. And so here is Jesus walking in among these olive trees, which we know had been planted there years before. How? Because much like the vines, an olive tree doesn't produce olives in its first, second, third, fourth, and sometimes not until its eight, tenth, or twelve years. And so the works that had already been in place for him to be in that environment, those had long already happened. And so Jesus, the anointed one, walks into the garden of the garden of the Gethsemane of the olive yard, and he likely goes toward the center where there is an olive press. Why was the olive press in the center of an olive yard? Because it provided the shortest distance to have to carry the oil-infused heavy load back to be processed. And in that olive press in antiquity, it was largely two white stones that were stacked atop each other. And as the top one turned under the crushing weight, under that friction, all of a sudden, the olives would be crushed and the oil would drip out. And so here is Jesus, the anointed one, surrounded by olive trees, likely near an olive press, and he too is being crushed. What, under the weight and the pressure of the suffering, is yet to come? But as he is being crushed, it is not oil that drips out of him, it is blood. And yet what we see is that in that place, he declares, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes on to endure the cross and three days later rise up with resurrection and healing power in his midst. And so we should not be surprised when our friend James, the half-brother, semi-brother of Jesus, says this in James chapter 5, verse 14. He asks the question, are any of you sick? Are any of you sick? Are any of you hurting in your body, in your mind, in your relationships? Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Why would a creator God hand-select oil we're pretty sure it's olive oil because there's a billion olive trees on planet Earth and 800 million of them are all in the Middle East. Why would God choose olive oil as a symbol of healing instead of any other substance? I mean, the creator could have chosen milk. He could have chosen mud. And instead, he chooses oil. I think one of the reasons is because I think God knew as creator that the healing properties were embedded in but I think a second reason that he did that is because he wanted us to remind us of what Christ did for us as the anointed one pouring himself out in sacrifice for you and me. A number of years ago, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. And it was the big kind, the many surgeries, chemo, radiation, all of it. 
And in the midst of that, it became so dark. And I share that because some of you in this room know that darkness. Some of you have lost people to that kind of battle or other ones. And in the midst of that, it just, all I can describe is it swallowed our lives. And some of you know that you've been through a divorce or a custody battle. Some of you who have lost a precious child or a grandchild, it just becomes, it, the crisis becomes the center point of your life. And often it becomes the center point of every conversation because it's all people have to talk about. What's the latest health update? What's the latest trip to the doctor? And in the midst of that season, I remember I sensed the spirit just kind of whisper in my heart. You can either choose to cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ, but you do not have arms big enough for both. And I remember thinking, Lord, I want want to cling to you, but I don't know how. I don't know how when I, I can barely have the strength to walk across my own living room. And in the midst of that, I remember being encouraged by this concept of tossing an anchor into the future like putting something else in life that was beyond the crisis and all the immediacy of that. As a little kid growing up in the Caribbean on the boat, when we would go to a dinghy, our dinghy would go in the water, we would need to stop and we'd toss the anchor down and then we'd pull back on it and that would provide the stability so no matter what currents or winds came, we were anchored in, we had something to hold on to. So here I am in the middle of cancer, I'm thinking, God, what do I hold on to? What do I do? And I'm sitting there in my living room one day and I thought, man, what if we got rid of these really 1980s peachy walls? And so my husband Leif went down to the hardware store and a couple friends came over and started painting the walls. I got on Craigslist, found a few little things to update with, and all of a sudden people in our community had something to talk about other than the crisis. How's the updating going? How's the painting going? Does it feel more comfortable? What's that like? It was so life-giving. I thought, this is incredible. I need to ask my husband, Leif. I'm like, buddy, like, like, you got to toss an anchor into the future. What do you want to do? And he says, Margaret, I've always wanted to swim Alcatraz. <laughs> I was like, newsflash, the goal here is to stay alive. That is the plan. But he really wants to do it. And so he goes out and he starts training and he's swimming and he's getting stronger. And all of a sudden, the people in the community have something to talk about other than the crisis. Like, how's the training going? How are your times? How are you feeling about it? And so he trains for six months and we finally fly out to San Francisco and he's going to go swim Alcatraz. And so he goes out there and he races and he finishes fourth in his age category. <laughs> I was like, woohoo! And he was like, not good enough. I was like, what? He says, I'm going to keep swimming this race until I place in the top three. And I was like, okay. So we go out for year two. And all of a sudden, he races, and he comes back, and he finishes fourth. (laughs) So we go back for year three. Guess what he finishes? Fourth. (laughs) It is year five. I'm like, please, baby Jesus, I need a miracle. And he goes out, and he finishes first in his age category. But that wasn't the win. That wasn't the win. You see, when we went there, the day before the race, he wanted to see kind of what the tide and the currents and the wind were doing as we go down to the beach, and all of a sudden there's two ladies who are sitting over there, and we strike up a conversation. They're like, oh, we're not swimming. It's our friend out there. And all of a sudden, this woman comes out of the water from swimming. She comes up, and they're like, this is Leif, and this is Margaret. And she goes, I know you. I've done your Bible study. I was like, whoa, weird. Cool, cool. And, and so I, I just said, yeah, I started up a conversation. And Leif was like, you know what? You've never done this before. I've done this Five times almost. And so I can tell you some tips, you know, like about the currents and the winds and how to aim and also na 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 na. And, and so it kind of takes her his wing. And then the next morning we all meet up because they're going to walk and go to the ferry for the race together. And, and that night, like, was like, I really feel like I'm supposed to give this lady one of your books. We just brought one and I think it's supposed to go to her. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. And, and so we carried along and we stayed in the morning and, and Life's like, yeah, you know, I brought this and you're the person it's supposed to go to. And all of a sudden, she bursts out crying. And I'm like, honey, that is going to fog your glasses. And that's a problem in this race. And she starts to explain her story. That the year before, she has been in one of the most brutal divorces. Custody battle is so ugly. And in the midst of it, it was so dark. 
And in that season, someone came along to her and said, man, you gotta, you gotta do something to think about your future. You gotta, like, wh what can we do to get out of this? And, and what do you like to do to exercise? And she was like, I wanna swim. Uh, and the lady was like, okay, we'll start swimming. And so she starts out 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, working her way up. And she's in the pool and she's getting stronger and stronger. And then she's like, you know what? I, I've gotta toss an anchor in the future. I, I'm gonna sign up for the Alcatraz race. And so she had been there that day for her very first race. And we encountered her. And I just looked at her and I said, man, this is no accident. My husband is here for the fifth time. We brought one book, and that book is for you. And I think what the Spirit is saying through this is that God knows your name. He knows your number. He knows exactly what you have been through, and you are not alone in it. More tears. I'm like, no fogging, no fogging. I was five years apart. Five years apart. And I share that because I don't know where you came in tonight. Some of you are probably in situations where you just heard the news, you just found out, or the thing in your life finally reached that tipping point, and you know it's not going back to where it was. You might be right in the middle of that big, hot mess and in the middle of it, that crisis has overtaken your life or the life of someone you love to the points that it's all you see, it's all you can do to just keep your head above water. And if you are in that place, can I challenge you tonight to toss an anchor in the future? Put something on your calendar. Go somewhere, do something, buy a concert ticket, look forward to a movie, buy a couple gallons of paint. Whatever it is, that will help remind you that God has a plan and a purpose for you. But I also recognize that a room this size, some of you are two years or four years or five years or maybe even 10 years out from that crisis moment. And if that is you, can I challenge you to become a person who rallies, a rally person who rises up and identifies those who are in the midst of it all and go in and say, man, what can we do? to help toss an anchor in your future. Maybe you're the one who takes him to the concert. You're the one who buys the gallon of paint. You're the one who plans the weekend giveaway. Because friends, God's healing power is not just meant to flow to you, it is meant to flow through you. Why does God speak in so many rich metaphors and images and realities in the form of food, something that graces our very own tables. I think part of it is because our God is so wide and beautiful and majestic that no single image could ever capture the wonder of who he is. But I also think it's because God wants us to know him in each of these ways. To be reminded that as we nosh on grapes that perhaps that there is some pruning that he is doing in our lives, but it is for our good and his glory that there is some abiding that we are invited to even when we don't see the immediate fruit. And that like the olive oil, that God's healing is coming for us. Maybe not in the way that we expected or thought, because sometimes when God doesn't heal you in the one way you want, it does not mean that he is not healing you in 10,000 others. So my hope and prayer is that you will be people who taste and see God's goodness and spread it everywhere you go. Thank you. That was amazing, thank you, truly. Uh, we're gonna let Margaret rest her voice for a second. I've got a few announcements I wanna make. Um, and then again, after I'm done, uh, she'll come back up for any questions you may have, whether you are here in person or with us online. And again, if you're with us online, uh, you can send questions to social at spdlc.org, uh, or you can use the chat function in the um, live stream. Uh, so the first thing I want to mention is I want to uh, let you know about our next event, which will be on March 7th. 
Um, one of the things Margaret mentioned earlier in her, in her talk is that we live in an increasingly divisive and polarized world. Do I have to convince any of you of that? No. So our next speaker, oh, and I totally forgot, I was gonna bring up a couple props. Can you give me the book and the magazine there, Margaret? Margaret thank you. Um, our next speaker is a gentleman named Alan Hilton. <clears throat> uh, he used to be a pastor at another church in the western suburbs here. He taught at Yale, and about, oh gosh, probably eight or 10 years ago, he started a nonprofit called um, House United which focuses explicitly and specifically on helping to bridge that gap in our culture. Um, so he's gonna come and talk about that. One of, one of the things I wanted to mention, um, I'm holding up the um, current issue of our Inspire magazine. Uh, this is the one that uh, our, our members have most recently. It's called Inspire Joy, appropriately, in this issue. And if you're here in the house, you can pick one of these magazines up if you don't have it. There's an interview, a wonderful interview actually with Margaret. In the next issue, which is gonna be hitting houses, Amanda, where are you soon, right? Is, is it? In the beginning of March. I think it's actually online though, actually. So uh, I'm not sure if that was intentional, but I just checked and it was. And in that issue, there is a interview with Alan Hilton. Um, so again, Inspire Magazine, if you want to check this out online, it's, uh, well, you can find it on the St. Philip Deacon website. So anyway, join us for Alan's talk um, on March 7th, 7 o'clock, again, free and open to the public. Um, I also want to mention, those of you here, if you don't have Taste and See, uh, the book, we have our dear friends from Subtext Books uh, selling copies in the Narthex, and uh, following the, the event, Margaret would be happy to inscribe them, I think, so go see Bia um, at the uh, desk there. And there's also a Bible study for this, so uh, we don't have that with us tonight, but I imagine at your local bookstore on, or your online book uh, seller of choice, you can find that. Uh, let's see. Um, and then a few words of thanks I wanna offer. Um, I, I actually don't remember who gave me your name, Margaret. I kind of think, Amanda, was it you? Or it was you, okay. So Amanda Berger, who's the editor of Inspire Magazine, who suggested many of our speakers, is the person who suggested Margaret. Um, so if you love this, you can thank Amanda. If you didn't love it, then talk to me. Or don't talk to me. <laughs> but how could you not love it? So thank you, Amanda. Um, also thanks to Jeff Elstad for being with us uh, with your music. Jeff, he's been with us from the very beginning. Oh, <laughs> my daughter Sarah is saying hello to Jeff. Um, and then uh, from the start, again, I mentioned this is the 21st uh, season of Faith and Life. We started it with five speakers and zero idea of how to pay for it. And uh, ever since that first season, we have operated in the black thanks to the generosity of wonderful people uh, like you and area corporations and organizations. And those individuals uh, and organizations are listed in our program tonight. I won't name all of them, uh, but I will mention our corporate sponsors, Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate Group, Mally Design, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels. And I know many of you are here, who are here tonight, also support the series, which makes it possible for us to invite people to come and hear wonderful speakers like Margaret at no cost. So on behalf of all of the people who support the series, will you please join me in saying thank you. Um, and I think that's all I needed to say for now. So, again, if you have questions, the first one's always the hardest. So if, if, if you have a question, I promise you other people are thinking of it as well. So if you're here, come on up to one of the mics. Uh, Paul, I hope we turned them on, did we? Okay, thank you. Uh, to my right or my right or left. And Margaret, if you wanna come back up and if nothing else, you can tell us about your welding hobby. <laughs> Hi, Margaret. Thank you for coming. You're a wonderful, lovely storyteller, and we just loved hearing your in person as well as in your book. Um, I was glad you touched on Fight Back with Joy. We used that for um, one of our book club books, and I'm actually the parish nurse here, and so it was really important to me because we have a um, cancer support group that I use some of the ideas from your Bible study to help with. So my question to you that can 
really maybe help some of the people that are struggling with their difficult times and healing is how were you changed by your experience of having cancer? How was it that you um, changed your outlook and how you did your um, Bible study writing mm -hmm. and um, storytelling? Yeah. Oh, that's a loaded question, but I'll try. Uh, so I was diagnosed um, in 2013. It was super aggressive. And uh, generally speaking, people who get something like cancer younger, it tends to be a lot more aggressive because you have a much stronger immune system. And so to break in, it tends to be, uh, it's just a general, not always. Um, uh, so I'm, you know, uh, in my 30s, I am, I am living a full, passionate, career-driven life and everything comes to a dead halt, and um, it was pretty extreme suffering, and my body did not respond well to treatments, I plugged out of some, it, it was a lot. Um, but I think the, the gift, I'm gonna be very careful how I use my language here. First of all, I think one of the things that it was brutal in it, and yet beautiful, is that we all carry illusions about life. Like we all carry these things like we're in control, or the illusion that um, you know that bad things will happen to other people and they won't happen to me, and and so many of those illusions got um, got destroyed, and that's a that's a severe mercy gift because on one hand we have these illusions, especially in our youth, and I think that that's a gift, and so if somebody has those illusions, I'm like keep them as long as you can, but once those are removed there is this freedom and grace to recognize, I think, a dependency on others, perhaps on a God, um, that, that isn't there because you realize you, you, you can't. Um, so I think what happened in and how that impacted my storytelling and teaching is at that point, I now walk among the suffering of the afflicted. And some of you who resonate with that phrase, you, you do too, you know. Like, if, if, if you've had the brutal divorce, if you've lost a child, I'm so sorry. If you've lost the love of your life, like, like that affliction is so deep. And, and unless you've experienced it or gone into something so deep and dark, you know, you, you just, you can't know what you don't know. Um, and, and I find that the people who have walked among the fellowship of the afflicted and, and, and experienced a severe pain in life, they tend to be some of the best ones to being there because when they show up, they're a lot like Job's friends the first seven days who like they're just there with their presence. I and mean, if you remember Job's friends, they only kind of got in trouble when they opened their mouth. Like, like there are people who know how to enter in and be and, and to, to, to offer things in such a way that is not a burden. Um, you know, instead of saying, well, I'll do anything for you, coming and saying, I've got three ideas for you. You know, I can, I can come and I can, you know, help with your yard, I can watch your grandkid, or I can watch every episode of Law and Order with you. You know, whatever it is. But you come with the ideas and say, pick one, or what's your favorite restaurant? I will get you a gift card there because I know that then you have the gift of choice in a situation where you don't have any choice. And so I feel like that really opened me up to a world of suffering. Um, that has not been the only physical challenges that I have had um, in getting severely ill. And, and so I think it, it, it drills wells of compassion inside that I would not have otherwise. Um, I think I see, like some of you stand up slowly or sit down slowly and I see it and I feel the ache in your bodies when I notice it. And I never would have done that without and so I think I'm stumbling here and rambling, but um, I do think that I do not consider cancer a gift. I will say this. Cancer, a gift is something that you want to give to someone else. Okay? So if you think cancer is a gift, I don't want to be at your holiday exchange party. <laughs> but there are gifts to be found. Uh, for me, one of them was... Um, you know, one of the, the beautiful gifts was uh, growing up, I had never heard uh, my father really express affection to me a lot verbally. And um, after I was diagnosed, my father was diagnosed about 90 days later. And so we're both battling cancer side by side. And so my poor mom is watching all of this. I'm her only kid, her only husband, 50 years of marriage. And, um, and I can honestly look at you and say, I heard my dad say I love you more in that season than I ever had. And does that make it okay? Does that, no, but there are still little gifts 
to be found. But we don't force anybody to try to find them. They'll emerge. They'll emerge. Okay. Uh, we do have uh, at least one question online. Before I ask it, though, I, I heard from someone else that there were a lot of good questions asked among people who are taking the Taste and See study here. So those of you who were at that event before tonight's talk, if you are willing to share some of those questions, that'd be great. Um, this person is slightly embarrassed to ask it because it maybe doesn't feel like the most meaningful or significant question, but she is wondering about your life on a boat in the Caribbean. <laughs> so I was raised by parents who came to faith in the uh, Jesus movement of the 1970s, and by nature they're just super free-spirited people. And so uh, my dad was huge in the surfing industry back in the 1950s, when uh, in the early 1960s, when longboards came around the first time, they were cool. And actually, uh, he built up the largest manufacturing uh, company of surfboards on the East Coast, but he lost everything through a series of fires. And they opened up a mom and pop surf shop down in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Ron John actually loaned my dad the money to marry my mom. If you know anything about the surfing industry, crazy deep history. Uh, so they're working this, they have this little store on the beach. They're working seven days a week. 12 to 14 hours a day, they are exhausted. The only way that they could get away was they decided to buy a little boat, and then they could leave it with a manager, and then they come back to these insane hours, but we would go, and sometimes we'd go for a month, sometimes we'd go for six months. I was, for third grade, I was uh, homeschooled, like on the boat instead of going to school. That was when homeschool was super sketchy. Like, <laughs> I did all my work one day a week and played the rest. Like, it was fabulous, but super sketchy. And um, so, yeah, so I've grown up there, and I actually just went, my parents are still living on a boat. My dad is 81, and my mom is 77, and they are still out there, and we went and visited them two weeks ago, and I'm like, you go, guys. You're my heroes. Okay. Oh, okay, we have Amanda coming up. So having read your book and the, the article that you did for Inspire Magazine, I know that you had this in wildly adventurous life, which is so much fun to read about. What is your next adventure that you're dreaming about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so as far as the writing world, and it has been an adventure, I've been working on a book on the Holy Spirit. Um, incredibly challenging. Uh, and, and I'm about three and a half years late. So, gotta wrap that up. Um, but, but in prayer and exploring and, and trying to live a life that is, is a, um, it is a, a gratitude-based aware, awareness to the presence of God um, in navigating that. But I think one day, if I get the energy for it, I would love to look at artisanal themes of the Bible um, and study uh, weaving and pottery and metallurgy and gold working and silver working and go spend time with people who do those kinds of things and write about that and look at the Bible. I think that would be fascinating. I mean, doesn't everybody want to write this? <laughs> <laughs> um, another question online. It's some, someone who must be familiar with your podcast, which is not come up tonight? Do you want to say a word about your podcast? Yeah, uh, I have a podcast called The Joycast, and um, it's been going on for several years. I took a little hiatus there in uh, the pandemic, but it is back up rolling and roaring, so super fun. And what's the, say a word about what it is or what you do on Yeah, it. every season is different. Uh, this particular season, we're actually looking at the book of James, which is I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, so super excited about that. Others? I, oh, good. Yeah, and I do interview, in a previous season, I did interview some of these people who I went and spent time with. Um, and so that was really fun. Like the salt, I went, down, I went 450 feet down in a salt mine, um, as people do, and uh, spent time with a salt miner. But there's an interview with him and some of the other characters in the book. Okay, if there are no other, I, I do think you do have to say, maybe final question here. I, at least, would like to know what the heck is up with the welding, in seriousness. I think it is the coolest art.
art form, you know, whether it's art welding or gas welding, and I just, I, I love it. I haven't done it in a number of years, but it's one of those things that as I move towards a slower pace in working, I just think it's so fun. You get to make cool stuff. I mean, you can make decor and furniture, and I love it. So what's the, what have you made? What was, what's the most interesting? Uh, thing like I make um, so I took horseshoes and I made a horseshoe bench and a lamp, um, welding together different pieces of metal. So I mean, as one does. As one does. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to stand up and say thank you. So just pause for mo one moment. Um, in other words, don't give her a lot of applause yet. You can do that in a second. Um, no, no, you have to stay up here. <laughs> oh, you're getting some water. I turn around and she's gone. Um, thank you all for coming out on a rainy night in February in Minnesota. Thank you all for joining us online. Um, this has been a joy-filled evening. I'm delighted you were able to join us. And we do have a little gift for you to remember this evening. And it's a little plaque that says, with thanks to Margaret Feinberg for bringing faith to life. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. And now you can applaud wildly and meet her in the Narthex Society.